0: You can have a seat and welcome again to Bayou City Fellowship. Uh, Turn to somebody close to you and say, hey, welcome to the family. And pull out your Bible, Psalm chapter 51. If you are guests with us today, you know, you may be wondering what on earth did I walk into? Because every church has got its own unique flavor and personality and uh, our flavor is real simple. Um, We want to be a people with a laser focus on Jesus. We want to be used up and burned up for the greatest name that there is. And I hope that you sense that today. We're so thrilled that you're here. You could say that Peter was the most committed disciple. He left his vocation, he left his hometown, following Jesus, took him away from his family for extended periods of time. He was bold in his faith and in his confessions. When a mob came to arrest Jesus, it was Peter who pulled out a sword and started swinging to defend themselves. But like us, he was a mix of commitment, but not perfection. After that mob took Jesus away, he was tried in a court, and Peter found himself outside the court, and, and people started to recognize him as potentially being a follower of Christ. Someone said, I think I recognize you, and he said, no, you must have me confused with somebody else. Somebody a little bit later, no, I, th- I, think, I think that you were a follower of Jesus, you were with him, "No, I you You're mistaken, I don't know the person. Third time, somebody says, no, I'm sure that I saw you with Jesus. You're even from the same part of the country that he's from. Peter says, I swear to God that I don't know this man. Strike one, strike two, strike three. Scripture says that when Peter does that, a rooster crows, and instantly Peter knows what he's done. And that's the moment that I want to talk about today. What do we do when we've done what we shouldn't have done? Uh, maybe for you it's not a relevant question because you make Peter look like a terrible disciple compared to how great you are. It is a relevant question for me. What should I do when I've done what I shouldn't have done? A simple phrase that I want you to remember when you leave this morning. Own your sin and own your forgiveness. Amen. Own your sin And own your forgiveness. Like Peter, David was a great man. Legendary man. Even non-believers know his stories and hold him in high regard. But a small section of 2 Samuel chapter 11 tells five huge mistakes that David made. Bad decision number one, David was not where he was supposed to be. It says in the scripture that it was the time of the year when kings went off to war. But David had decided to stay at home. Instead of going out with his army to defend their country, he stayed at home in his palace. And one night he was looking out of his palace and he saw a woman bathing. And he was attracted to her and he's the king. So he sent word for her to come to the palace and she did. Bad decision number two, they spent the night together, adultery. She was married, he was married. We don't have her perspective on it. It could be even more than adultery. David could have inappropriately been using his power and influence. Over Bathsheba. But bad decision number two, he commits adultery. A few weeks later, a month later, she sends word to him that she's pregnant, which leads to bad decision number three. He tries to cover it up. He calls for her husband Uriah to come home. Uriah has been where David should have been with the army. Because David is thinking when Uriah comes home, he'll spend time with Bathsheba, the pregnancy will look like it's his. But Uriah doesn't go home to Bathsheba. He stops at the palace and he actually sleeps at the door of the palace with the rest of the king's servants. And David questions him, Why on earth would you do this? Why would you not go home to be with your wife? And he says, It's not fair. It's not fair to my fellow soldiers who are still off at war that I would get to come home and enjoy life. I can't do it. David even tries to get him drunk after that so that he would stumble home back to Bathsheba and the pregnancy could look like it was his. But Uriah refuses. Which leads to bad decision number four. David murders Uriah. Not with his own hand, of course. He sends word to the general, put Uriah at the front lines. And when the battle is at its thickest, withdraw. And so Uriah dies. Bathsheba mourns for the appropriate amount of time. And then David moves her into the palace. And she becomes another one of David's wives. Everything now fits neatly into the box that David has created. Except for God knows And God tells one of his prophets, Nathan. Nathan goes, knocks on the palace door, and meets with David. Starts to tell him a story about a poor man who had a lamb, and he loved this lamb. He loved this lamb as much as he loves his own kids, which is weird, but I guess it's the point of the story. And he fed this lamb, and he cared for this lamb. Very close, there was a rich man who had a lot of lambs, a lot of sheep. The rich man hosts a visitor, and he wants to throw a dinner for his guest But he doesn't want to use one of his own sheep. So he goes and takes the sheep of the poor man. And David is furious. He's so angry that this could happen in his kingdom. Bad decision number five. David judges another but fails to judge himself. The prophet Nathan says, David, you are that man. You were the king. You had everything. But you tried to take something that was not yours to have. And just like Peter, David realizes what he's done. What should I do when I've done what I shouldn't have done? Thankfully, we have David's response to Nathan's confrontation. in Psalm chapter 51, verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar." So we learn a few things from David's own words. First, we know that David was, had sinned and was a sinner. When I was in college, I left one of my classes walking across campus to another one of my classes. I see some commotion up ahead. There's people standing on a street corner uh, handing something out. I get closer, I see that they're handing out pamphlets. I get even closer, I can hear what they're saying to people as they hand them out. You're a sinner, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, you're a sinner. <laughs> You're a sinner. They hand me one. You're a sinner, and I'm like, yeah, no duh. Have you met me? Of course. Right. We start saying the word sin and sinned. Uh, it would be easy for some of us who have had a negative church experience, whether you were the person being influenced to hand out the pamphlets, or you were one who received a pamphlet. It's easier for us to just just maybe tuck this message away and just move on. But if David were walking by that day, he would not have disagreed with the young woman who handed me the pamphlet. He knew he had sinned and he knew that he was a sinner and his sin ran deep. I mean, look what it says in verse five, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. David is saying, listen, my sin goes way beyond my last bad decision. It's been with me since the very beginning of my life, since conception. And he was not saying that somehow his mother had made a sinful decision and he was the product of that. He was talking about the generational gift that Adam and Eve started, that we've been handing down sin from one generation to another. I received it and I have passed it on. You have received it and you will pass it on. He's saying from the very beginning, my moment of conception... I was a sinner. So what does that mean? Does that mean none of my bad decisions are my fault? I've been trying to blame my parents for lots of stuff. Now I can blame them for everything. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's true. Your bad decisions are not your fault. And your bad decisions are all your fault. Our DNA is not clean. But neither are our hands. That's why David says... Verse 2, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Verse 3, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. It's not either or, it's both. We have sinned and we are sinners. And here's why it's important that we own both. Because if sin is just the product of my bad decisions, then I can fix myself with enough books from Amazon and Barnes & Noble, I can restrain myself. I can transition from bad decision-making to good decision-making. I can help myself. Or if I categorize sin as just someone else's fault, it's not my fault, it's my mom and dad's fault. I'm just the product of this generational gift of the ages. Then there's someone else always to blame and I never have to take responsibility. But we learn from David that he sinned And he was a sinner. We also learned from David that his sin had stolen from him. One morning I went out to my car and the driver's side door was cracked. I was instantly frustrated with myself because I knew that I had left it open. So the dome light had been on all night. The battery was going to be dead and I was going to be late for work. But when I opened the door, I realized that my situation was much worse. There was nothing left in the car. No radio, none of my jackets, none of my bags. The only thing that was left in the car were the seats and leftover McDonald's french fries. That was it. That's why you put alarms in cars. That's why you have an alarm on your home. So that you know when someone is trying to break in and steal from you. We all hate that feeling of guilt. We avoid it at all costs. We don't like being around people who make us feel guilty. But guilt is a gift because it is an alarm inside of us that something is stealing from us. It's bells and whistles going off in our soul saying a thief has broken in and is trying to steal the things that are most important from you. Look at some of the things that sin stole from David. Verse 8, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. He's saying, God, give me back joy joy. I used to have joy, but then this happened, and and now my joy is gone. And we need to know the difference between joy and enjoy. Bad decisions are often enjoyable. People enjoy getting drunk. Uh, We enjoy the fruits of our greed. We enjoy gossip. Like the scripture said, it tastes like chocolate. good. We crave it. We hope conversations steer in that direction. We enjoy those things. That's why when we go fish, we bait the hook with something that the fish will enjoy. That's all temptation is. Uh, Temptation is a hook with something that you might like covering up the hook. David probably enjoyed his evening with Bathsheba. But sometimes when you get on the hook, Bait goes away, but you're still on the hook. Uh, David didn't enjoy the murder; he was just on the hook. Sin stole from him. It also says, "Verse eleven: Cast me not away from your presence; take not your holy spirit from me." This is not a fear that you and I should have. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, has been given to us as a gift from God at the request of Jesus. After Jesus' resurrection, He made sure that the Father would send us His Spirit so that we would know the presence of God localized in our lives, so that we would be empowered for the mission that He's given us, and so that we would know and be reminded that Jesus is going to return one day. We have the Holy Spirit. He's not going to be taken away from us because of what Jesus has requested. Before Jesus' resurrection... God would pour out his spirit on just a handful of his servants so that they would be unusually empowered for the task that he had placed in their hands. And David was one of those people. And he's saying to God, God, please don't let the bad decisions that I've made remove your presence from my life. Remove your spirit from my life. He says in verse 18, do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. So he makes a turn here in the psalm. The whole thing has been about his relationship with God. But at the end, he turns to God's relationship with the people that David leads. This is the underrated and unseen cost of our personal sin, how it affects someone else. We like to think the consequences of our bad decisions only land on us. But in fact, they land on us and on everyone that we love. We think about the ripple effect of David's one decision to stay home from war. How it affected Bathsheba. How it affected Uriah. How it affected the general. How it affected Nathan. How it affected David's children. Never underestimate the cost that someone else will have to pay because of your bad decision. the late 1950s, after the Supreme Court had ruled that our schools should be integrated, there was a pastor who thought that that was not a great idea. America should still be segregated. He must not have read very much of the Bible or he had forgotten some of the parts because God has told us the future. And in the future, when we are in the fullness of the kingdom of God, we're going to be standing there with every color of the world, every person from every nation represented, every tribe represented, every language represented. And you would think that because that's our future, we should be working towards that goal. But this pastor, for some reason, didn't think that was a good idea. And he preached one sermon in the late 50s about why integration was a bad idea and segregation should still be the norm for America. Uh, He was a uh, very prominent pastor. In fact, he was known as the Baptist Pope. I don't know if you'd want to be the Baptist Pope, uh, but uh, apparently he did, and that's what he was known as. Incredibly influential. He had uh, the largest largest Baptist church in America and probably the largest Baptist church in the world. So whatever he said, Many, many, many people took their cues from him. And because of this one sermon, which to his credit, 10 years later, said uh, he never should have preached and he had repented of his views, but the damage was already done. Still, the denomination that he represents is light years behind racial reconciliation. The unseen and underrated theft of our bad decisions, not how it affects us, but what it steals from other people. And we learn from David that he had to look outside himself for forgiveness. That's why he says in verse seven, "'Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. "'Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow.'" And in verse 10, "'Create in me a clean heart, O God, "'and renew a right spirit within me.'" Verse 14, "'Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, "'O God of my salvation.'" He looks to God for forgiveness. And what does he find? He finds that what God desires is a broken and contrite heart. That's what verse 17 says. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. What does it look like to have a broken heart? We see a spectrum in the scripture. On one side of the spectrum, we have Cain. You remember Cain, the firstborn son of Adam and Eve? Cain was a man of the land, he was a farmer, and he would bring the best of his produce to God as an offering. Abel, his little brother, was a shepherd, and Abel would bring the best of his flock as an offering to God. Well, over time, Abel kept bringing the best of his flock, but Cain decided to do what many of us would do and just offer God the leftovers. Whatever space I'm not using, whatever I don't have, whatever I don't need, whatever's left in the tank, that's what I'll give to God. So instead of bringing the best of his fruit and the best of his vegetables, he started bringing the stuff that he didn't want, like, you know, cauliflower, The only purpose for cauliflower is a vehicle for ranch. That's it, something to dip in ranch. He was bringing the parts that he didn't want. Maybe God would do a miracle and change it into something good, like cheese. Uh, He was bringing his leftovers. He was bringing his worst. He was bringing the rotted stuff, not the best stuff. And God was displeased with his offering and said so. And instead of Cain having a broken and sorry heart about it, he did what we do when someone confronts us. He got mad. He got mad and he killed his brother. On the opposite end of the spectrum is a woman who lived in a little village in Israel. She was known as the sinful woman in her village. Not, not just a sinful woman, but the sinful woman. She had heard that Jesus was in her town having dinner with a very righteous Put together, wealthy leader. She didn't care. She just busted right into the middle of the dinner. She fell down at Jesus' feet. She was crying so hard, it's as if Jesus' feet were being washed. When she realized what she was doing with her tears, she let down her hair and she dried them off with her very own hair. She was broken. She was sorry. And David says, This is the spirit, this is the heart that God receives. He says in verse 16, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it and you will not be pleased with the burnt offering. David's saying, if there were religious motions that I could go through to make this up to you, God, I would. If I could compensate the bad thing that I've done with something good, I would. But God, that's not what you're going to receive. The group of people that Jesus tangled with in the gospels, the Pharisees, this is what they tried to do. They had an incredible amount of religious action. We would look at their lives and be so impressed with them. But their heart was bad, and their bad heart had infected their good actions. So Jesus didn't receive any of what they did. And they didn't notice it, because they would always compare themselves to someone else. And compared to someone else, they always looked great. Comparison is the number one reason why you and I often do not have a broken heart before God. Because we can always look to someone else to find someone else who should be sorrier than we are. We are infected with a disease personally in our church and in America called the yeah, but what about? Someone confronts us. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, but what about this other person who's worse than me? We do it with other Christians. Well, yeah, I know I'm not perfect, but blah, the guy sitting next to me this morning, you know, I mean, he's my husband, but gosh, he's a terrible person. <laughs> we can't critique any leader in this country without going, yeah, but what about? And so because of that, we're never broken We never own the mistakes that we make because someone else is always making a bigger mistake in our opinion. There have been occasions that Amanda has rightfully pointed out some of my weaknesses as a husband, as you should do in 15 years of marriage. And I have said, yeah, I acknowledge those, but at least I'm not this husband, that husband, this husband. (laughs) Didn't go over that great. not sorry for the things that we've done because there's somebody who should be sorrier about the things that they've done David says it's a broken heart and a sorry spirit is the only sacrifice that God wants from us after we've done what we shouldn't have done and what do we find when we have that broken heart we find a God who is always loving and always merciful. Verse one, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. David's saying, God, I appeal to you for mercy on the fact that you are a loving God with long suffering, patient, never ending love, And I appeal to you for mercy in the fact that you have abundant mercy. Ephesians chapter 2 says that God is rich in mercy. You know, the word rich is just hard to understand uh, in our culture today. I read recently that Mark Zuckerberg, the founder of Facebook, is worth $55.5 billion. I mean, that number means nothing to us. You know, our government talk, talks in like hundreds of billions of dollars just on an average Tuesday. And so it doesn't really mean that much that Mark Zuckerberg is worth $55.5 billion. So I was trying to break it down for me in a way that would help me really understand what that meant. And so, you know, he probably has the world's best investors looking out for his portfolio. But let's just say that he's a man of the people and decides, you know, I wear a hoodie just like normal people wear a hoodie. I put my hoodie on the same way that Robbie C. puts his hoodie on and in the summer. And, and so he zips up his hoodie and he heads down to the local Bank of America in San Jose, California and he walks into the lobby and he signs his name on the little sign-in sheet there and he takes a little seat and somebody comes out of the little glass office and says, how can I help you? And they don't recognize that it's the second most wealthy person on planet earth. And uh, he says, I wanna just uh, open up a mutual fund. I wanna invest in a mutual fund. And so they go back into the little glass office and the person types it up, mutual funds that Bank of America has and they find just just an average mutual fund that returns 7% of your money return on investment, 7%. I mean, Mark Zuckerberg's real investors are making him a lot more money than that, but 7%, just a run of a mill mutual fund. You know how much he would make? $3.8 billion. But let's say Mark Zuckerberg, is, is, he's risk-averse. He's even more normal than that. And he says, I'm just gonna take my money and I just wanna set it in just a regular checking account. Most of our regular checking accounts earn in 1% interest per year, just, just sitting in there, just earning a measly 1%. So if all he did was put his money in the bank for one year, he would earn over $500 million. The the point of that is Mark Zuckerberg is, number one, will you please be my friend? (laughs) Number two, he's never gonna run out of money, ever. So when the scripture says that God is rich in mercy, abundant in mercy, he's never gonna run out of mercy. He doesn't dispense it out like an allowance. He doesn't disperse it based on who needs it most. Well, you really made a big mistake. You're gonna need a lot. Sorry, you made a smaller mistake, so you're gonna have to wait a few weeks until I get paid in mercy and then I'm coming to you. He's rich. He has more than enough for all of us. The problem for most of us is we acknowledge that, but we're earners. We're earners. And we have this picture of God, that God is up on the mountain somewhere. And we start out down at the bottom of the mountain and it's our job to work our way up to that mountain. And we feel closer to him the higher we get. And we, we all want that. We all want to know that our prayers are being heard. We all want to know what the voice of God sounds like in our lives. We want to know that he is empowering the things that we're trying to do for him. So we love that idea that we're getting closer and closer and closer to him. The problem is we are us and we make mistakes. And it feels like we tumble back down the mountain. And depending on if your mistake was small, it's just a, just a stumble, Just a, you fall down just a little bit. If your mistake, mistake was median, then you fall halfway down the mountain. But there are some mistakes that all of us have made and it feels like we just tumble all the way back down to the bottom. And most of us are stuck in that cycle of God is up there and that's where I wanna be. And I think that's where he wants me to be. And so I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying. But I fall and I feel far away and I try again and I fall and I'm far away and I try again again and just up the mountain and down the mountain. Some of us are spiritually tired today because you've been uh, in an unending mountain climb. So when it says that God is abundant in mercy and he's rich in mercy, that is most clearly seen in his son. The gospel, the good news today is there is no way that even on your best day, your best month, your best year, your best lifetime, that you could ever get to the top of that mountain. God is so holy and he is so glorious and he is so other than us. There is nothing that you could do to ever get to the top. It's even higher than you think it is. But he loved us and he has mercy for us, so he sent his son down the mountain. Jesus came down to where we were. Jesus is the perfect picture of God's mercy. And that picture is most clear at the cross. Romans chapter three, verse 23 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Meaning we're never getting to the top of the mountain. But they are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And God publicly displayed him at his death as the mercy seat acceptable through faith. On the cross, Jesus is God's mercy on our lives. God's steadfast, enduring, long suffering love, dying between two thieves so that my sin could be forgiven. David's sin could be forgiven, and your sin could be forgiven. Jesus stepped down and stepped in. God is always loving and merciful, and then God is merciful and loving to teach us truth and wisdom. It says in verse six, "Behold, you delight in the truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart." God, out of His love and mercy teaches us right from wrong teaches us good choices from bad choices so that sin doesn't break in and steal from us any longer and it doesn't steal from the people that we love what should i do when i've done what i shouldn't have done i own my sin and i own my forgiveness and don't underestimate what god may do through your life when you do those things the 1800s uh, yale was a christian university And in that moment, in the 1800s, it was not acting very Christian. Yale was the party school. It's weird to think about it now. It's a high-achieving school, but it was the party school in the 1800s and uh, just really, honestly, kind of a godless environment, even though it was supposed to be a Christian school. And one Sunday, two college students went to church, two young men. And in the middle of church, they were broken about the decisions that they had been making, just like Peter, just like David. And they committed their lives to Christ right there. And it spread like fire. It was said in those days that any place that students were gathering, they were not talking about academics and education and their studies, that they they were talking about Jesus and his salvation. And in a very short period of time, half the student body had committed their lives to Christ. Why? Why? Because two young men owned their sin and then owned their forgiveness. You never know what God might do when you and I know what we should do after we've done what we shouldn't have done. Let's pray. Spirit of prayer, why don't you ask God directly, God, what what are you speaking to me today? What is it you want me to know do you have anything to say God help us to be doers of your word and not hearers only in Jesus name Amen why don't you stand to your feet